Imagine for a moment that you have a good friend who isn't readily at hand and whom I've never met, uh, so we can't have a personal introduction, but you want to tell me about your friend. And, and so I say, well, what's he like? What are some words that you would use to describe your good friend? Well, what would you say? Is your good friend funny? Or serious? Is, is he intense or laid back? Is he a compassionate and caring person? And indeed, there are, there are many different kinds of words that we can use to describe a friend. The Bible teaches that God is not an impersonal force. He's a person. And as a person, we can relate to him as we do to a friend. So how would you describe God? When we think of God, when you think of God, what words come to mind? Perhaps that's a, a good question to ask one another as we share a meal together this afternoon. How would you describe God? Several Christian authors have written well on this topic. One of the finest books that your elders would recommend is J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Other classics include The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer or the Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. There are several other fine ones. Today, I would like to think to us to think about just one of these attributes of God, starting from Genesis 50, verse 20. So, in your Bible, please find Genesis 50, verse 20. Genesis is the first of the 66 books of the Bible, and chapter 50 is the last chapter of Genesis. So, please find Genesis 50, verse 20. And look at this verse with me. Joseph, that young man that Joshua read about a few minutes ago, is now about 20 years older, perhaps even a little more. And a lot has changed in his life. We'll talk about that momentarily. And his brothers have now come, in essence, bowed down before him. And he says something to them. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you... Speaking of those things Joshua read about. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. This afternoon, we're going to reflect on the goodness of God. What is God like? Well, one of the things we can most certainly say about Him is that He is good. And the goodness of God is woven throughout the Scriptures far beyond this verse. For example, Psalm 86.5 says, For thou, O Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness to, to all who call upon thee. And so there, God's goodness is linked to His forgiveness and His loving kindness. Psalm 100 verse 5 adds, For the Lord is good, His loving kindness is everlasting, and His faithfulness to all generations. So again, God's goodness is linked to His loving kindness and also there to His faithfulness. Psalm 119 verse 68 adds, Thou art good and doest good. And so the fact that God is good means that He does good. His goodness is active, not passive. Psalm 145 verse 9 proclaims, The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. And so His goodness is also seen in His mercy. 
Now, those are just a few of the hundreds of verses in the Bible telling us that God is good. But let's ponder even more. What does it mean when the Bible says that the Lord is good? The goodness of God is not the same thing as His purity or His righteousness or even His holiness. This is telling us something more about God. In this book, The Knowledge of the Holy, Pastor A.W. Tozer explains the difference between God's holiness and His goodness as he writes this, the goodness of God is that which disposes Him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill towards men. So when Christian theology says that God is good, it is not the same thing as saying that He is righteous or holy. The holiness of God is trumpeted from the heavens and re-echoed on earth by saints and sages wherever God has revealed Himself to men. However, we are not at this time considering His holiness, but His goodness, which is quite another thing. He's tender-hearted and a quick sympathy. By His nature, He's inclined to bestow blessedness, and He takes holy pleasure in the happiness of His people. That God is good is taught or implied on every page of the Bible. It is the foundation stone for all sound thought about God and is necessary to moral sanity. A.W. Tozer there has hit the nail squarely. God's goodness is in relationship to people and to His creatures. It means He's kind, tender-hearted, compassionate, gentle, merciful. It means He desires to bless us and not to curse us. He wants to help us rather than hurt us. He wants us to find joy in the life He has given us. And as Tozer said there right at the end, this is the foundation stone for all sound thought about God. And then he added that interesting phrase, it is necessary for moral sanity. Tozer is saying that in some, some sense, not believing in the goodness of God is insanity for the Christian. You can't function in the Christian life without it. During my years that I spent in full-time pastoral ministry, I did quite a bit of counseling. And over those years, I started to notice a common thread among people who were really struggling in life, people who were depressed, people who were deeply angry. So often, they did not understand or really believe that when it came to them personally, that God is good. For the child of God, for the one who has come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and has been adopted as his child, the Scripture promises that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And that promise is true because God Himself is good. As we reflect upon the goodness of God this afternoon, my hope is that we will be encouraged to approach life with the same attitude and conviction which we see in Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20. But God meant it for good. Difficult times and painful trials will come in every life. But can you say with confidence, God is good and God means it for good in my life? Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive.
My big idea this afternoon is this. Be encouraged. Be encouraged because God is good, so whatever happens, He means it for good in your life. Be encouraged because God is good. So whatever happens, He means it for good in your life. And in Genesis 50 verse 20, I see three, three truths in this verse for us to consider. First, God's goodness is the opposite of man's evil. God's goodness is the opposite of man's evil. Now, that seems obvious, but it's a good place to start because this verse sets evil and good as opposites. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joshua read for us the story of how Joseph's brothers intensely hated him. They intended to kill him. They threw him into a pit. Later, Reuben persuaded them to sell, well, it was Judah who persuaded them to sell him into slavery instead. So they sold him to the Midianite traders who sold him to Egypt, in Egypt to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. Why did they hate him? Jealousy. He was their father's favorite son. He had that beautiful coat that the father had made for him. He also had those dreams suggesting they would all bow down to him. How dare he? He was the 11th son of Jacob, not the firstborn. How dare he think that he, the 11th born, would rise above all of them? And so their evil plot arises out of hatred and jealousy. But as we've seen, God's goodness comes from His love, compassion, and faithfulness. Now, their evil plot, as we were to read the story further, was just the beginning of Joseph's troubles. In chapter 39, Potiphar's wife sought to seduce him, to take this handsome young man into her bed, but when he refused, she told great lies about him, inciting her husband to throw Joseph into prison where he was forgotten for many years. She meant it for evil against him, but God meant it for good. You know, we must reject this modern popular idea that people are really quite good at heart and only commit crimes or do evil things when their circumstances leave them no other choice. In Genesis 50 verse 20, one of the things we see is that evil people are very real with evil purposes. And that, of course, is not limited to just these chapters. started back in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain killed his brother Abel. Genesis 6, 5, we read the somber words, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And of that truth, we can find hundreds of examples throughout the Scriptures and uncountable ones in history. From Genesis 3 through Revelation chapter 20, evil people are doing evil things after the sound of the sixth trumpet during the great tribulation of Revelation chapter 9, we find these revealing words about mankind, the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver, of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. 
And so evil people with evil purposes are very real. And the only time that is not true is in the first two chapters of the Bible, the Garden of Eden, and the last two chapters of the Bible, the new heavens and the new earth. We've got exactly two chapters at the beginning and two chapters at the end where evil is not pervasive, but everything in between where we all live today, evil people with evil purposes are very real, but in contrast, God is good, and God is always good, and His goodness is the opposite of this evil flowing from His love rather than hatred and jealousy. And so that's the first tr truth we learn in Genesis 50, verse 20. God's goodness is the opposite of all this evil. It stands in contrast to the wickedness and the evil we see even in the world today. Now, the verse starts by saying, you meant evil against me. But thanks be to God, it doesn't end there. What are the next two words after you meant evil against me? Next two words. It's not a hard quiz. But God. Those are two of the most beautiful words in Scripture. But God. And so the second truth we see here is that God's goodness overcomes all this evil. If you're taking notes, an alternative title for this second point could simply be, But God. But God meant it for good. God's goodness is overcoming continually all of the evil. Where would we be in life without those two words, but God? Let's take a quick side trip through just a few scriptures to remind ourselves about those beautiful words and the truth that they communicate, which is inherently rooted in this verse. Psalm 73 is the my feet had almost slipped psalm of Asaph. Asaph confesses that when he sees the, the prosperity of the wicked, the, the fact that evil people are getting away with it again and again, he confesses in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, at those times of life when you feel like you're coming undone, like Asaph, remember, but God, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's an even greater but God in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, perhaps the greatest one of all. Peter proclaims, you nailed him, Jesus, to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Guess what the next two words are? But God, but God raised him up again. They crucified the Son of God, the King of kings, the way, the truth, and the life because they hated him. But God, God's goodness overcame the greatest evil imaginable. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Hallelujah. Romans 5.8, another favorite. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were trapped in the slavery to sin. But God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were in that condition, Christ died for us. But God, 
Ephesians, of course, picks up on the same theme in chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even at the, as the rest. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Where would we be without these two little words? But God. Those are few, just a few of the dozens of but God verses in the Scripture. So, returning back to Genesis 50, verse 20, and the second point, God's goodness overcomes all this evil. In spite of the hate-filled intentions of those ten brothers, God turned their evil into great good. In spite of the lust-filled intentions of Potiphar's wife, God used it all for great good. I'll say more about that great good in the third truth, but for now, a, le a legitimate question is this. Does God always overcome evil with good, or is it just in these special circumstances? I will answer that with a qualified yes, because Romans 8.28 says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Do you love God? One of the ways you know is if you love the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen in John chapter 8, Jesus say, if God were your Father, you would love me. So if you love God as evidenced by your love for and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His death on the cross for your sins, then yes, you have this sure promise that God causes all things to work together for good in your life. This is not just a special occasion in Genesis 50 verse 20. We may not always see it in this life, but we believe it. God causes all things to work together for good. And so in Genesis 50 verse 20, we've seen first that God's goodness is the opposite of all mankind's evil. And second, that God's goodness overcomes all kinds of evil. And then third, we see that God's goodness often requires the long view. God's goodness often takes the long view. It's not something that we're always going to see right away, immediately. As we look again at Genesis 50, verse 20, look now at the last half of that verse. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, now here it comes, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. All that had happened, all these pits and trials and tribulations and prison was part of God's plan to bring about this present result. At this point in the story, Perhaps as many as 20 years have passed, and Joseph is the vice regent of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, in power and authority. You can read Genesis chapters 40 and 41 for the entire story of how that, that transition happened, but it, it leads up to these words near the end of Genesis 41. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. 
You shall be over my house, and according to my command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. And they set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. When he took off that signet ring, what that meant, you can hear the word signature in signet. That was essentially the, the ring that Pharaoh would use to sign official documents by stamping the wax. And so he was giving Joseph the authority to reign over all of Egypt, to sign documents and proclamations and laws. And what we have read about here is perhaps the most dramatic and incredible rags to riches story found anywhere in the Bible. Because literally just four hours before this, Joseph was in prison, forgotten, languishing, had no idea how long his sentence was going to last. And now, God has made him second in command of all of Egypt. And God had this in his perfect plan when those evil brothers threw Joseph into the pit to die. But God, you know, imagine a person serving an indefinite, perhaps life sentence in San Quentin Prison or Folsom Prison or Kentucky State Prison or what have you. And then suddenly, four hours later, finding themselves elevated to an unimaginably high position. These days, it usually goes the other way, you know, from high politician. Anyway, God's bigger and greater plan didn't end there. Because there's so much more of the story. Over the next seven years of great prosperity, Joseph managed the food stores of Egypt to prepare for yet another seven years of coming famine that would follow. And because of Joseph's God-given wisdom, he saved not only the people of Egypt, he saved his own family, his brothers and his father and the people of God. And that all is what the verse is pointing to when it says God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Because Joseph was ruling over Egypt, there was food to save his brother and his father and to preserve the line from which the lion of the tribe of Judah would come. God was preserving the very people through which our Savior would be born. God was certainly taking the long view. As we sit down to eat a meal together in a few minutes, another suggestion for conversation is this. Where else in the Scriptures do we see God use man's evil plans and intentions for great good and His glory? Where else in the Scriptures? Think about it. I think there are several, the greatest of which is Jesus on the cross. Evil men meant that for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about our justification and the gift of eternal life for all who had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe 
on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. As we've been hearing from Andy's sermons in the Gospel of John, these things were written that you might believe, and that believing, you may have life in His name. Believe in Jesus as revealed in the Gospels. And today, no matter what difficult, painful, even terrible things might come into life, believe that God is good and He means it for good purposes. Now, as we apply this truth to our lives, what are some examples? What are some ways that God is good to each one of us? The Scriptures speak of many, but here's a quick sample of four ways for our reflection. First, God is good in His provision for us, His provision for us. Psalm 145 brings out the connection between God's goodness and His provision. Verses 9, 15, and 16 say this, "'The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. The eyes of all look to Thee, and Thou dost give them their food in due time. Thou dost open Thy hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing.'" Psalm speaks of how God gives the rain, the crops that grow, and the, the animals that can feed. He gives us jobs. He gives us homes, gives us covering. James 1.17 adds, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So every good thing you have is a gift from God. And not only that, God gave you that gift to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You know, think about it sometime. God did not have to make this earth beautiful. He could have made it without color, without fragrance, without variety. He could have made food without taste. So the next time you see a blooming flower, a beautiful sunset, the spectacular waterfall, remember too the goodness of God that He made these things for us to enjoy. This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass I hear Him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. So God is good in His provision for us. And the next, God is good in His protection over us, His protection over us. Psalm 4 is the evening prayer of King David. So, before David puts his head on the pillow at night, Psalm 4 verse 8, he prays, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for Thou alone, O Lord, dost make me to dwell in safety. You and I can put our heads on our pillows tonight and close our eyes in peace because God and God alone makes us dwell in safety. Do you go to sleep in peace at night? You can because God gives us safety and peace. In Nahum 1.7, in the midst of a prophecy about judgment, destruction, and vengeance, we find these words, the Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. Those are just a couple of the dozens of verses throughout Scripture that, speaks of God, that speak of God's protection, which is part of His goodness to us. 
When we lived in Washington State, my family experienced God's protection in a rather dramatic way. Our property there was covered with Douglas fir trees, some as high as 80 feet tall. One Sunday afternoon while we were eating dinner, we heard a loud crash outside, and one of those trees, about two feet in diameter, had snapped off as its base due to high winds and toppled right into our children's play area. It even broke some of Timothy and Josiah's toys. By God's goodness, it didn't happen an hour before or an hour later because two of our children could have been killed. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. You can taste the goodness of God in His provision for you. You can taste the goodness of God in His protection over you. Third, you can taste the goodness of God in His patience with you. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Oh, how patient is God with you and with me. 2 Peter 3.15, regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. If it wasn't for the patience of God, nobody would be spared. Nobody. God was patient with Abraham when he lied twice, saying his wife was his sister. God was patient with David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then tried to, to, commit it, to cover it with murder. God was patient with Elijah when he sat down under a juniper tree and had a pity party and wanted to die. God was patient with Jonah when he ran away from Nineveh when God said, go. He was also patient with Jonah when Jonah sat down under a gourd plant and wanted to die. God was patient with Peter when three times he denied the Lord Jesus Christ and that he even knew him. God was patient with Paul when he was a blasphemer and a violent man, 1 Timothy 1.16 says, For this reason I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him. And so God was patient with Paul there as an example to us of God's patience with all of this, with all of us. How many times has God been patient with me in my sins? I can't count that high. You know the good patience of God and His provision for you and His protection over you, His patience with you. And, and finally, we can know the goodness of God in His plans for you. God had a good plan for Joseph, didn't He? And in Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, For I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Now, that is written directly to Old Testament Israel, and many fine Bible teachers have made the point that Christians today cannot claim that verse as their own. The, the you there is not in, in first instance, you know, you, but it's Israel. But the verse also reminds us of the character of God who has good plans for His people. What was happening 
in Jerusalem when Jeremiah spoke those words from God. Death, destruction. One of the refrains of the book of Jeremiah is terror on every side. The Babylonians were besieging Jerusalem and about to level the city. But God still had good plans for his people. And, and so the verse is showing us the character and nature of God who is good, patient, forgiving, redeeming, in that he has plans for his people. God is good in his provision for you. God is good in his protection over you. God is good in his patience with you. God is good in his plans for you. I have focused on the goodness of God this afternoon, but none of the attributes of God exist in isolation from His other attributes. As we've seen, the goodness of God is interwoven with His love, His mercy, His compassion, His righteousness, His goodness. Oh, his goodness is <laughs> His goodness. But His goodness is also empowered by His sovereignty or what we call his omnipotence, as these plans and purposes of God can never be thwarted. Job confesses it so well. Job 42, verse 1, he says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's goodness can never be thwarted, even by the greatest evils of mankind, because of God's omnipotence. God's power. God's goodness is also interwoven with His severity or His justice, as Romans 11 verse 22 says, behold then the goodness and severity of God. Now, that seems like a very strange combination. J.I. Packer, in this book which I referenced earlier, has an entire chapter devoted to the relationship of God's goodness and God's severity. And if you were to read nothing else in this book, I would encourage you to read at least that one chapter because it speaks so profoundly and accurately to the modern misconceptions that God's goodness means that He will never judge, that God's goodness means that there is no wrath of God still to come upon people who will not repent. God's goodness does not eliminate God's wrath. The full consequences for sin and the rejection of God will come upon those who do not repent, and God is good. Now, as I wrap this up, I want to ask you two questions. Two questions and we're done. First, do you really believe that God is good? The Bible says it over and over. But do you really believe that when it comes to you, in your life, that God wants to bless you, be kind to you, bring joy to your heart? I know, as I alluded to earlier, that by pastoral experience, there are Christians who are deeply struggling in life because they don't believe that when it comes to them personally, that God is good. They imagine that God wants to make life painful and difficult for them. No, the reason that pain and trials and even suffering and injustice come into our lives is because God is doing something bigger and better. 
God's goodness takes the long view. We may not see it in 20 years. We may not see it in our lifetime. But God is causing all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Second question. What difference does it make in how you live? What difference does the goodness of God make in how you live? Well, I have four answers to the second question. First, if we truly believe in the goodness of God, we will be thankful people. Thankful people. First Corinthians, uh, First Chronicles 16.34 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Psalm 106, verse 1, praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Psalm 107, verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Psalm 118, verse 1, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Psalm 136, verse 1, guess what it says? Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. You see a pattern there? If we truly believe in the goodness of God, then we can be thankful people in every circumstance, even the pits and the prisons of life and the greatest trials. So, what difference does it make? Third answer. Because God is good, we should seek to be good. We are told in the Scriptures, be imitators of God. We are told, you shall be holy because I am holy. We should also be good because God is good. We should strive to be kind, compassionate, patient, and gentle. In Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control as we reflect the goodness of God through the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Be imitators of God who is good. What difference does it make that God is good? I think I lost track of my numbering. This is number three. That was number two. <laughs> Sin is often a result of doubting the goodness of God. For example, if I lie in a business transaction so that I can make a little more profit from it, I'm doubting that God will provide for me, that God will take care of me. So much sin has at its root or near its root a doubting of the goodness of God just as it did in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. What difference does it make? One more thing. Because God is good, I always have hope. No matter what happens to me, I believe that God is good, that He's working all things together for good and He has a, a good plan. If I experience pain or sickness or injury, I trust that God has a good purpose for it. If I go hungry, it's not because God failed. If I know poverty, even then, God is good. I may not see the outcome right now because God is taking the long view. And friends, because God is good, there's always light in the darkness. There's always hope. The prophet Habakkuk at the end of his little book says it very well in words familiar to many of you. Though the fig tree should not blossom, 
and there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. How can Habakkuk say that? Because he's confident that God is good. As long as you believe that God is good, there's always hope. There's always light. There's always peace. And the ultimate expression of God's goodness is Jesus on the cross. If you are ever tempted to doubt the goodness of God, look to the cross. Ponder the cross. See the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, Thou art good and doest good. Encourage us with this meditation that no matter what discouraging things may come our way, that you're good, that your goodness overcomes all the evil in this world, that your goodness has a bigger, longer plan in view. Help us to remember the goodness of God and to be thankful people to people who Say no to sin, because we know that you will provide for us, that you are good. Help us to have hope and peace and joy and light, because God is good. Amen? Amen.